being a physicist, from all objective point of views, is a miserable career. Yes. And uh, I don't have to state the reasons. The only reason it's worth doing is you just enjoy this. You're obsessed by it. You love what you're doing. And so if you do it as a job, it's going to be very, very disappointing, I think. So don't underestimate yourself until <laughs> I went on this crazy adventure of uh, Amanda and Ice Cube. I always lived with the insecurity that I didn't belong to the circles I moved in, which I think must be true for almost every graduate student. Just get over that. Hello and welcome to another fascinating and ultimately endearing episode of the Into the Impossible podcast. This is such a treat to present Francis Halsen, who not only is one of the greatest physicists living today, but met the greatest cosmologist perhaps of the 20th century, the man who came up with the Big Bang Theory, according to some accounts. And that's, um, that's of course, Father Georges Lemaitre. And I know I'm pronouncing that right because he was Belgian, and today's guest is Belgian too, and that's Professor Francis Halsen, who had that honor of knowing Lemaitre and also teaching yours truly uh, for a brief quarter while I was a student at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, home of the Badgers, the Fighting Cheeseheads. Uh, I love my time there. I miss my time there. He's the second professor to come on the show from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My uh, PhD advisor, Peter Timby, was on about a year ago, maybe for our Father's Day episode a year or so ago. And that was great. Uh, but I never had Peter Timby, my graduate advisor for a professor, uh, unlike Francis, who is today's guest. And you'll just love his ability to explain, to entertain, to raconte as a raconteur and uh, share his his inimitable knowledge of the cosmos, of particle physics, really from the beginning. And he's so sprightly. He hasn't really aged a bit, uh, maybe physically has some more gray hairs, but not mentally. He's as sharp as ever. And he's really been through enough to give anybody gray hairs. Uh, you'll hear about the moments of panic that led to moments of great relief, perhaps, but only after decades. And it really reminds me of some of the interviews I've done with Ray Weiss and Barry Barish that you can find in the back catalog. Uh, so please do uh, really, uh, you won't want to miss the slides that he shows, which you can see on my YouTube channel, Dr. Brian Keating on YouTube, 75,000 subscribers. Uh, it's free to subscribe. You can join if you want. There's a tiny membership you could pay if you really wanted to, but I, I don't do that for this. I, I do that, uh, what I do for, really the privilege of talking to these incredible minds and uh, thinkers and contributors to what I think of as the highest expression of culture of what we do as human beings, which is to work together to build scientific tools that allow us to understand where we find ourselves in the universe. And uh, it's incredibly important to me that, uh, that you know, you are on this journey with me because uh, when I mentioned to Francis that uh, that uh, I wanted to have him on, he, he recognized this podcast and this podcast wouldn't exist without you guys and the support and love you give. And if you want to show some more love, again, these are all free things. I only do free stuff, really. I don't ask for money. I feel like I get paid enough as a humble uh, servant of the University of California with the newly reelected governor, Gavin Newsom, my boss, um, that we will really uh, have enough to sustain ourselves intellectually uh, just with a tiny bit of support. And so one way to do that, subscribe to my YouTube channel where you'll see the slides that he showed and really you'll see the animations and videos as well. Uh, and you should also leave a review or rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you do a review on Audible or on 
an uh, Apple podcast, I'll read it and I might read your name like I'll do today with Marco H. Crass from the good old USA, whose review is entitled Inspiration for Curiosity and Problem Solving. Great podcast with a thoughtful host and a variety of interesting guests that dive deep into thought-provoking subject matter. Fresh takes on cutting-edge research and age-old questions alike. That's exactly the vibe I'm going for. Thank you so much, Marco. And I'm just so thrilled that I have you all on this journey. And you won't want to miss joining my free email mailing list, which comes out twice a month, basically. It's easy to join, easy to leave if you want to. It's free. And you may win some of this stuff, which is a high-energy particle at some point. These are little tiny meteorites, which used to be fragments of a failed planet in our solar system, perhaps, that blew apart billions of years ago. And I'll send a tiny fragment to you if you're one of the next 100 people that sign up to my mailing list at briankeating.com slash list. That's briankeating.com slash list. And it doesn't cost you anything. And you'll have a chance to win some of this phenomenal space schmutz. So for now, sit back and enjoy a tour, a journey, a voyage that will take us to the bottom of the Earth, the South Pole, Antarctica, and to the deepest reaches of the cosmos as we explore the fascinating, mysterious world of the only form of dark energy we know exists. Sorry, did I say dark energy? I meant dark matter. Even more mysterious to some, and that's neutrino physics. Come along, let's go with Francis Halsen into the impossible. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Well, it's not every day you get to talk to a hero of physics, of modern physics, someone whose roots go uh, go back quite a ways, someone who's been a leader in the field of, of astrophysics, of particle physics, who's an educator and a communicator of science, uh, but also who is actually, I think today's guest is my first ever guest who is a professor of mine, <laughs> although I took his class as an adjunct uh, student while I was at the University of Wisconsin. And it is one of my personal heroes. This is Francis Halsen, uh, who is a Belgian particle physicist, although he's been in America probably more than half his life. He's the uh, Hildale and Gregory Bright Distinguished Professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's a director of the Institute for Elementary Particle Physics, and he's the principal investigator of the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory, which is operated at the South Pole, Antarctica, uh, since 2010. Before that, there was Amanda. Uh, Francis, it's a certain treat to be here, for me to host you here, rather. And I just hope you won't share the grade that I got in your club. Please don't <laughs> tell my audience. I don't want to... <laughs> I I don't think my bureaucracy, my administration is so good that I would be able to produce it. <laughs> uh, well, it was one of my favorite classes of all time. Not not to mention the fact that back then it was rare that professors wrote the textbook that was used for the class. I think I had that only with Leon Cooper at Brown um, with one of his quantum mechanics books. Um, but uh, but to take this course on uh, particle physics with you, and it was uh, it was such a treat. And I thought we'd start there, Francis. We always start. We have on you know we just had on Martin Rees, Lord Martin Rees, last week, and he uh, spoke about his book. And we always do a scenario called judging books by their covers, where we look at the cover of your book and we judge it. And and how did you come up with the name? And hopefully entice you know a, a, a tenfold increase in book sales instantaneously. <laughs> so the book we're talking about is called uh, Quarks and Leptons. It was a wonderful, wonderful book that I uh, had there. We'll, we'll show it on the screen. It's written with uh, your co-author Alan Martin. Well, I don't recall uh, much about him, but but uh, certainly taking it from you was quite a treat. So Francis, can you help us judge 
Quarks and Leptons by its cover. How'd you come up with the title, the subtitle, and the cover illustration? The title was actually, first of all, I must say, this was a long time ago. And that's the amazing thing about the book, right? People don't realize now that this book was written uh, a long time ago and that the W, the Z, the top quark, none of these things, the Higgs, none of these things had been discovered. <laughs> you know, like the whole book is kind of prediction of the standard model. And uh, in fact, it I, the, the book was in print when the W was discovered at CERN, the weak intermediate boson. Wow. And uh, so the editor called me and said, you can still change things. You know, I've read a newspaper and I said, there's nothing to change. <laughs> and he was kind of uh, worried that he had been part of some huge gamble. <laughs> so, uh, but the title is kind of embarrassing because although I think it was really the books were really written in parallel. Uh, Okun, famous Russian theorist, right. wrote the book Leptons and Quarks that came out around the same time. So it's not that original. <laughs> <laughs> and the illustration that you have on the uh, cover, what does that represent? There's I, I, the only thing I remember is that I actually made it, <laughs> and it remembers, you know. Jets were something rather new then, uh, you know, quark glue on jets, the yes. concept. And so I know that it represents like a jet made in deep inelastic scattering or something like that. Right. Uh, it's amazing that I cannot remember. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think that rings true. And actually, we have had on past guest uh, Frank Wilczek uh, many times. And he he cites that the discovery of jets, at least not not by you know Ice Cube or anything personal, but he cites that as as the kind of signature achievement of of his career and of work that that yeah. uh, particle physics yeah. as a community has led to. Um, and I wonder, you know, if we could pivot from this wonderful book, which I learned a great deal from, and I still make reference from when I have uh, the the task of teaching to young people as well, as well as your style. So uh, I want to first take a step back. Uh, it is rumored that you knew Lemaitre, the famous uh, Belgian Catholic priest, the progenitor in some sense of the Big Bang. Is that true, Francis? I barely knew him. Uh, he, uh, he died when I was doing my undergraduate thesis. And so uh, I could tell Lemaitre stories for a long time, but I'll only tell you two, uh, because, of course, ev every interaction I had with him is now legendary, right? But I'll only tell you two. He had a computer he built himself to solve Friedman's equations, and it was a, a big room with vacuum tubes. And... That computer, I mean, it was state of the art at the time, was only used uh, during uh, the day. Mm -hmm. And we actually, we mean the, another graduate student and I, Remo Gassmans, we would actually break into the room and uh, use the computer at night. And we used it to calculate Feynman diagrams. Uh -huh. Feldman had just discovered the methods 
right. to, 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 to calculate Feynman diagrams by computer. And so I think we may have been the first people to do this after, after Feldman discovered it. The other story is that uh, when I uh, I was uh, an undergraduate, the maître would arrive in a limousine at the physics building, and you know he was an important person, and right. he couldn't walk anymore, barely walk, and we put him on a chair, and then carried him to his office on the second floor, <laughs> and. It's only later that someone else who was part of the Institute told me that that was actually Lemaitre. I had never made the association. Wow. He was not very visible. He was retired and, uh, you know, he came in very rarely. And, and uh, by the way, mm -hmm. he was not famous, right? As you can imagine. Right. He wow. was famous for uh, being a cardinal and for his role, I think, Maybe his role in Vatican II, but I don't think so, actually. Yeah. So he was, uh, I mean, you know, the, the status of cosmology at that time, right? right. So what? it was just at the time he died, as you know, when the microwave background was discovered. That's right. And one of the things that's always impressed me about him and many others is that he was an advocate that the Pope... Uh, was it Gregory? I, I forget who it was in Vatican, but they they uh, attempted the Vatican attempted to uh, utilize the you know predictions yeah. of the Big Bang at least as a motivation for Genesis. And I, I was actually just in Galileo's uh, house in in Florence, Arcetri, Italy. And of course, you know, he was refuted by the, the Catholic Church and repudiated his own ideas under penalty of death, basically. But um, did you ever get the sense or was there anything in the Belgian physics community, perhaps, that uh, that that, you know, spoke of what was his true, you know, um, emotional investment in the Big Bang? Did he have one or was he able to detach being a no, scientist I, from being I, a theologian? Yeah, I cannot tell. I was not. You know, he, I never got any class. He basically was at the end of his life. And so we had really no interactions scientifically with him. But yeah. the fact that he uh, he denied that the Big Bang had any connections to creation, that's, I think, well documented. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, know, you read his biography, there are a couple of biographies of his, which I've read, of course, and uh uh, they, they they clearly document that he he didn't see he didn't make any connection to religion. Mm -hmm. And when we were getting ready to start recording today, um, I wanted to kind of get your you know take on the obligations of a scientist in terms of what he or she should do, quote unquote, should do. Uh, and I think you know Lemaitre certainly took that role seriously, but, but, you know, he had so many hats that he was wearing, you know, pontifical hats maybe and <laughs> science hats, but, um, but what's your philosophy? We'll, we'll come to more kind of big picture questions later um, after we review ice cube and your career. But um, what is your view of, of what the obligation, if any, that a scientist has to explain things to the public and then do they have to kind of be careful how they explain things because maybe the public doesn't understand what they're doing? Well, I think I uh, 
from this point of view, I am a, a very pra practical person. I don't think I'm on a mission of anything. <laughs> and on the other hand, uh, I think that uh, given we are supported uh, by the public to do our science, we owe some return to them. And, you know, I have never turned an invitation you, to talk about my work to anyone to, at any level, any student of any age. I always react positively to an invitation to discuss my work. And, and that's, I think, an obligation we have. Uh, beyond that, uh, I think it's very dangerous to... You know, our expertise is science, and it's actually, even within science, it's a very limited expertise. And I think it's uh, to the advantages of scientists that they stick to their expertise. <laughs> and that's certainly something I always do. Yeah, I always say that, you know, the, the problem that we are scientists deal with is that sometimes we become political scientists and yeah, we start exactly. to delve into politics. Uh no, that's not a good idea. And it also, it hurts science, right? Because it then science begins to look like something that it shouldn't be, and it's not. Right. And there's a danger in what we call audience capture, that you have to um, only do what your audience wants you to do. So on this channel, a lot of times people <laughs> want me to only have people that won the Nobel Prize or only talk about aliens or only talk about dark matter. <laughs> and I have to be very careful because I get a lot of attention from the videos uh, that are popular, but that isn't necessarily the totality of what I think a scientist should be interested in. So anyway, I think you're absolutely right. And I want to ask you, um, you know, first, we can go back uh, to maybe a moment in your career that was a little bit, you know, maybe perilous. I remember being in, in Madison, as you know, from 97 till uh, Peter Timby, my my wonderful advisor, who's been a guest on the channel. So you're my second guest from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the great Badgers, uh, uh, cheese state, Dairyland state. Um, so uh, I had nothing but fond memories of being there. Uh, when I had Peter on, we were kind of, you know, speculating on on the the notion as a scientist to deal with uncertainty. And I remember you building, you preparing to build and, and starting to build up Amanda. And it wasn't just the technology. It wasn't just the theory. It wasn't just the science. It was the people. It was the team that you built, which is, you know, which is unrivaled. And it seems to me you've been working on this for so long. Was there ever a time that you had doubts in yourself that the funding would come about, that you might not succeed as you've done so, so spectacularly well uh, with Ice Cube. Did you ever have a moment of panic uh, uh, that you just were so terrified the project might not move forward? The whole the whole story was a story of panic. You see, you, you got the right word. Uh, you know, from the beginning, when uh, people thought that... Uh, this was a very cute idea, but that it wouldn't work. Well, that's what we thought too. <laughs> so, but it kind of started as a, you know, as a, a game. It didn't cost that much. We were piggybacking on the on the South Pole infrastructure that already existed to a large extent. Uh, but then NSF. Uh, 
started to fund the project, I actually borrowed a lot of money from the University of Wisconsin. And I was deep in debt to both NSF and the university. And we had never seen a neutrino, not an atmospheric neutrino. <laughs> and so, and of course, it's because... Uh, we really didn't know whether turning ice in a Sherenkov detector was possible. It took us like a decade to figure out what the ice was like. We couldn't put it in a test beam at Fermilab. And so, uh, you know, the most exciting, among all the panic moments, the most exciting moment was not when we discovered cosmic neutrinos, but when we finally observed atmospheric neutrinos, because that I felt we have delivered. Now it's up to nature. And even afterwards, I thought, you know, if a scientist, you, the English like to gamble, right? Scientists wrote an article that gave us six to one to discover uh, cosmic neutrinos. <laughs> against, of course. And uh, I remember not feeling very well when I read this. But then uh, I, I always thought if we did build something that unusual, we'll do something interesting. The big surprise, actually, is that uh, we are doing neutrino astronomy and not something totally different. We do different things as well. But the other moment of panic is when we finally got the courage to publish in science that we had detected cosmic neutrinos. And weeks later, we were declared uh, breakthrough of the year in 2013. And I must say that uh, was also a moment of panic. And I remember the press conference and the only thing I told about is how do we run this backwards if this happens not to be true? <laughs> right. And, that and not I lived with that panic for quite a long time. In fact, it's only now that we see sources, right, since 2017 that, you know, I, I I sleep better at night. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a you know thirty-year journey to. But this this was a wild ride, right? This whole story of ups and downs, and yeah. So, um, what was the role of the South Pole in in this? Could it have been done somewhere else? There there are alternative approaches, but none even closely related in success to what you've achieved. So No, there, that, that was, uh, it's a unique opportunity because you need clear eyes. Clear eyes exist elsewhere, but you have to build a sophisticated detector in a remote location. And without the South Pole stations, I mean, you, this would not have been possible. Remember, we started in a very modest way and nobody would say, oh, there." we always wanted to build a kilometer cube detector. Can you imagine someone saying, ah, Halsey wants to build a kilometer cube detector. Let's build a station somewhere above the glacier in Greenland and uh, give him the opportunity. It was pure serendipity that these two things came together, the clear ice at the South Pole and, and the station being there. Nobody would have built it for us. No, and it's such a unique location. I've been there 
twice. Uh, I, I actually prefer going to McMurdo than going to the South Pole, but that's just me. A lot of people love going to the South Pole more than anything. Uh, and the the results that you've garnered, yeah, it's it's it is serendipitous in a way, but it also took a lot of foresight by you and your team to recognize and persuade. I, I think one of the least appreciated aspects of a scientist is his or her ability to persuade. And that includes persuading a undergraduate to work in his or her lab or a funding agency or to get tenure or to get even a professor job. It's so hard nowadays, but then building a team. So it's it's not enough to have the right idea. Like the idea is just kind of the table stakes, you know, to use a gambling analogy. Um, so when when did the the kind of um, th- that that subs- subsiding of that panic what has been, I mean, of all the things that Ice Cube does, and we're going to cover it a little bit of technical detail because my audience is the most sophisticated in the known regions of the multiverse that we inhabit. Um, but I want to ask you of, of the technical breakthroughs, could Ice Cube have been done, you know, 50 years ago? Let's say if there was a, you know, very, very young uh, Francis Halsen as a, as a graduate student, could you have done it 50 years ago? Or were there technological breakthroughs that you and your colleagues and understanding of the ice has made? Yeah, uh, it depends. It's a difficult question. I it's a question I've never answered, which is rare. Uh, One of the challenges, I mean, maybe the biggest challenge, was to build a hot water drill. And that was such an unusual problem. It was also an exciting problem because, you know, you don't go to school and they teach you about hot water drills, right? No. So, well, in Wisconsin, they do actually, right? This was done by a group in Wisconsin of engineers, professors, graduate student technicians, anyone who could contribute, Mm -hmm. contributed. And it was very exciting. But I think, you know, it's car wash heaters that make the power. And the nozzle is very sophisticated. It was designed by an engineer, but it could have been done before, no Mm -hmm. doubt about it. I am not so sure about uh, the data acquisition because, um, of course, we could have used the Amanda technique of of just sending analog signals over uh, the cable that brings down the high voltage, right? To that powers the photomultipliers. So, but the the data acquisition of IceCube is a bit more sophisticated. You know, we capture the signals in uh, in the ice, transform them to digital, and then transmit them. And so that was, in fact, the chips that are used were the PhD thesis of a student of David Nygren hmm. at Berkeley. Oh, wow. So that was really a bit, beyond state of the art at the time. Of course, now uh, that technology is, is looks like archaeology, right? But uh, <laughs> this was, uh, the, the Berkeley design was made in, um, in the late 1990s because mm. it was all in place when we submitted a proposal in 99. Right, wow. So it could have been done it probably could have been done earlier, but in its present 
form. And for the discoveries we make, the electronics, I don't think we could have done it with Amanda analog signals. Uh, uh, it's pretty essential to have the technology that uh, Nigran and the Berkeley Group uh, developed for the data acquisition. I want to ask you, because I knew you as a, as a student of yours, uh, albeit not as a graduate student, I think that would be a, a great treat, but, um, but as a student in a class about uh, for advanced, you know, undergraduates and graduate students on particle physics, um, why do we conflate um, scientific ability with educational or pedagogy ability? In other words, um, you know, someone who's a pilot may be extremely skilled at flying, but we don't ask you know, him to like teach flying necessarily, although you, and you can actually teach flying with, I'm a pilot in my side hustle uh, to, to pay the bills here at the state university of California. Uh, but I want to ask you, why is it that we do that? Do we do, do they do that in Europe? Is, is that common? Um, you know, that we have an expectation that because Francis or Brian are good at scientific research, that they're also good at teaching or, or is that a mistake? Well, I, this is one this is one of the things I feel passionately about and never had the time to do much about it. But I think that uh you know the graduate uh school that exists today at American universities uh is uh in a sense, unfortunate. It still lives in the days that you take courses and learn all of physics and then do research. First of all, you cannot learn all of physics anymore. You cannot even learn all about some specialized subject in physics. No. So the way I have, I, I have everything I know, and the, the Belgian system at the time allowed you to do this, everything I know I've, I've learned by doing research. Mm. You get interested in a problem, you have to solve it, you learn everything you need to solve that problem. And that's how you learn. And you remember, by the way. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, that's the ideal way that you Trying to get a background of all of physics before you start doing research is an illusion, uh, which we sh which we are still living in in our present system of graduate schools. Yes, yes, and it's it seems to be you know sort of strange how the European system influenced the American system, you know the the uh, Germanic uh, kind of uh, emphasis on research, and now most of the Ludwig Boltzmann or, or Max Max Planck Institute they don't teach as I understand it. So it's kind of ironic that the t educators of the American system um, the uh, they don't do any education of their own <laughs> anymore. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the technical details. And the theoretical underpinnings of IceCube, and and you've been kind enough to prepare some slides, so I'll let you get set up to share the screen. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or twenty four seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay. So, uh, you know, we want to detect uh, neutrinos from 
space because we want to do astronomy with neutrinos rather than with photons. And we know how to detect neutrinos. This is an experiment in Japan in a deep mine, and it's a huge tank of water and light sensors. And that's how you detect uh, neutrinos. The problem with this beautiful experiment is that the theorist in their wisdom told us that, uh, and by the way, I'm not blaming anyone, <laughs> it was one of them, uh, told us that this experiment is 10,000 times too small to, to do astronomy and catch the tiny flux of uh, neutrinos that reach us from the universe. So to make a long story short, we built a detector that... Uh, instead of water, made out of water, it's made out of ice. Mm. And the phototubes are distributed throughout the ice. And uh, according to our wisdom, as theorists, it probably had a chance to detect cosmic neutrinos, but no guarantees were given. And so what you're looking at, of course, is, uh, is not a real picture. But so if you go under the South Pole, you stand, the South Pole station stands on three kilometers of ice. And you go one and a half kilometer deep, uh, there are strings with uh, the light sensors that you saw on the walls of the Japanese experiment. And so the strings are a kilometer long, and there are 86 of them. So the light sensors between strings are 17 meters apart, and the strings are uh, 125 meters apart. And 86 of these strings fill a volume of ice with uh, light sensors. This idea, by the way, was uh, born in 1960. The Russian physicist Markov came up with this idea. So the idea is certainly not new. So the challenge was to melt these uh, sensors into the ice. And so we developed, that was the, the, the first big challenge. We developed uh, technology at Wisconsin to do this. And the second challenge was, was this ice good enough to act as a particle detector? And that's a long story. And the story is told in this slide. And I would spend the rest of your time if I went through this slide. But we made our major breakthrough when we realized that the light, blue light in ice, travels over hundreds and sometimes hundreds of meters. So this is a compacted snow of 70,000 years ago. It's ultra pure. And even in a lab, you cannot build a block that transparent to blue light. So that we didn't know that. That was pure serendipity. So these two things being solved, we built it and took data. And the idea is, you can imagine your block of ice here. And uh, you can imagine that it's like one and a half kilometer deep. It's dark. So what we do is we look for particles coming through the Earth, and only a neutrino can come through the Earth, nothing else. And that neutrino not only comes through the Earth, it comes through your detector. But occasionally, like one in a million, will hit a nucleus in the ice, a nucleus of hydrogen or oxygen, and 
make particles. The particles it makes in the nuclear interaction, they are charged and they make the light glow. That's called Cherenkov radiation. And if this is a, a, a muon neutrino, then it makes a particle called the muon and it travels for uh, kilometers in the ice. So that muon uh, you can detect from 50 meters to at high energy, 50 kilometers away. Uh, that's not quite practical, but you get the idea that your detector is, is bigger than what your instrument. And uh, the other thing is you have a telescope because you not only detect a muon, you can uh, point it back because the muon travels at the speed of light almost. Mm -hmm. And the light in in ice travels at three quarters of the speed of light. So it's like a speedboat that uh, outruns its waves. And so you get a shock wave, like the bow wave of a boat, and you can and it points back where that muon comes from and where the neutrino comes from. Right. So we built a detector and here you see an event. This is a neutrino that comes 11 degrees below the horizon and streams through the detector. It deposits inside the detector 2,600 TeV of energy. So you must remember the highest energy beam at CERN in Geneva mm. is 14 TeV. So this particle deposits just inside the detector 2,600. And by the way, um, uh, I mentioned atmospheric neutrinos, which are background. This event is much too heavy to be produced in the atmosphere, much too mm. energetic. And we can do astronomy these days with about 0.3 degree resolution. If you didn't get a picture here, you see on mm. our online display, you see the muon going through the detector with the speed of light slowed down by the computer. And so that's the method. And so what we did is we measured neutrinos from the cosmos. And you see here, this is the energy that uh, the detector collects in neutrinos from the cosmos and as a function of the energy of the neutrinos. And the data points you are looking at are electron and tau neutrinos. And this actually is the flux of the muon neutrinos measured the, the pink uh, band is the flux measured with the method I just displayed. The other data points, we measure electron and tau neutrinos with a different method, but you see they agree. And uh, so this is the muon flux through the earth. And you see how we measure the flux from the atmosphere when we reach the threshold of the detector, which is 100 GeV. Mm -hmm. Then we get more and more background in atmospheric neutrinos. And when we reach some place like tens of TeV, then you see the atmosphere turns off and we see the excess flux that was shown on the previous picture. This is a measurement now close to 10 sigma. And we have seen atmospheric neutrinos in at least four totally different ways. Mm. Uh, that's the status of ice cube. Uh, 
I have a few slides uh, to show what our results are. If uh, yeah, please yeah. do, please do. In fact, one our most important result we actually never advertise, but I'll do today, and I I always personally do. I showed you the flux from that we receive from the universe, the energy flux in neutrinos. It's what astronomers call new F new. And of course, uh, we receive, we detect fluxes of gamma rays. Here you see this peak, this huge peak, that's the CMB. Very familiar to my host. <laughs> and then you go through, it dominates the universe. Then you go to uh, different wavelengths of light. This is ultraviolet light, X-rays, gamma rays. But then the universe turns opaque to gamma rays. They turns opaque to gamma rays because it cannot make they cannot make their way through the microwave background. The microwave background filled the universe stops them from reaching us except from our own galaxy. Right. And, and actually, uh, Francis, I have to stop you there. Yeah, uh, did, go ahead. Did you know that the namesake of your professorship, Bright, the Bright Wheeler? phenomenon, which is the interconversion of photons to to uh, positron electron pairs. That was only recently detected. And um, and actually, I made a video about that. I'll have a link to it in, in here. But uh, okay, that was thank you. Yeah, that was really exciting. Right. Anyway, please go on. Yeah, the pair production. Yeah. Yep. Uh, pair production. So these photons uh, pair produce, make E plus E minus pairs interacting with the microwave photons. And so they lose energy. So the flux disappears. And that, of course, is the raison d'etre of neutrino astronomy. Uh, you see here, once you are below, beyond this demarcation line, you can only do astronomy with neutrinos. And uh, but the other interesting thing is, if you look at the flux of the gamma rays, the flux in neutrinos we observe is actually larger than the flux in gamma rays. And nobody had ever expected that. And that's also why we found it with only two years of data. And uh, so this is an interesting fact, which uh, still requires some thought and explanation. Uh, so. Now we have to find where these neutrinos come from. So here is a picture of one year of neutrino data in galactic coordinates. So that's the sky. We see neutrinos. We have 10 of these pictures for 10 years of data, more now. And we know from the flux we just measured that in this map, there are 138,000 plus atmospheric neutrinos, wow. 200 of them are actually cosmic. But you also saw what I explained. If you go to very high energy, the atmosphere cannot deliver neutrinos anymore, and you are in business. So if you look at the very highest energies, it looks like this. Uh, these are various methods with which we collect collected these cosmic neutrinos. But notice one thing. We don't see our own galaxy. Mm. Now, mm. in any other wavelength of light or any other way of doing astronomy, the first thing you see are the sources in your own galaxy. We don't see those. Uh, we see 
flux at the 10% level of the flux that reaches us from the cosmos. So there are galaxies outside our, or sources outside our own galaxy that overpower the flux from the nearby sources that produce neutrinos in our own galaxy. Uh, we have a paper that's on, on, uh, on the review in science that will address this question. Mm -hmm. uh, but just to remind you, that's what uh, the galaxy looked like in visible light, and we don't see uh, the galactic plane in neutrinos. Now, for many years, we made uh, the cosmic neutrinos were discovered in 2013. Of course, the game was where do these particles come from? You know, we know their direction now to 0.3 degrees. And we did all kinds of things, uh, but I'm going to just tell you about the latest. We we actually discovered a source in a multi-messenger campaign in 2017. It was an active galaxy. And uh, I'm going to tell you what happened uh, since then. We collected, we looked at our 10-year map and we published a paper a year ago, and you are looking what's in this paper. Uh, and forget the red, just look at the blue. The blue, this is uh, the upper limit on neutrino sources. We didn't see any by analyzing 10 years of data. Uh, and you see the dashed line is our sensitivity to sources as a function of where they are in the sky. The northern hemisphere is on the right, zero is the horizon, and uh, the left is the southern hemisphere. And we discovered, however, that our map after 10 years was not quite symmetric, isotropic anymore. And it was due to these four sources. Hmm that we detected at almost five sigma discovery. Wow. But that's before the look elsewhere effect. After you imply the look elsewhere effect, the asymmetry in the map was still real, but the evidence for the source is not so great. Mm. Uh, NGC 1068 almost reached three sigma with all trials taken into account. So the question was, were these limits on fluctuations? And I'm not going to, I'll just give you the answer. They are not fluctuations. Uh, we went to a campaign to calibrate the detector better, to do improved uh, reconstructions using machine language. We improved the point spread function of the telescope, abandoning Gaussian approximations. And uh, with the conspiracy of all these improvements, we answered the question I just posed. And here you see NGC uh, 1068 before the improvements. And then you see we calibrated the detector better, in, including calibrating each uh, phototube individually. And you see how this is the source, the astronomical occasion. You see how the, with more statistics, we move towards the source. We, the, we point 
better at the source. And our final evidence is at the level of 4.2 sigma. Now, this is uh, the result of a blind analysis where we mathematically can compute all our trials. So this is a real, this is not a social construct. It's a real probability. And so I can sleep well at night <laughs> with 4.2 sigma. Uh, so here, another way of looking at it, this is a picture of NGC 1068. It has this very active hot cal uh, corona surrounding the central black hole. And here you see the simplest way to look at a signal. You see, this is the direction of uh, NGC 1068. The orange is our background by atmos from atmospheric neutrinos. And you see, if you approach the source, the number of neutrinos increases. So we see 88 neutrinos pointing at the source with on average higher energy than the energy of the background, which you cannot see on this picture. So that was certainly very exciting. Uh, here you see, let me just look at the, the top one. Uh, these are three analyses that confirm each other. They are slightly different. They actually use, assume different spectral indices. But you see here the five sigma discovery, which I showed before. And you see, this is pre-trial. You see NGC sticking out of it. You see a source TXS of five or six. That's the source we discovered in wow. 2017 because mm. it produced a neutrino of enormous energy that telescopes in a multi-messenger campaign pointed back at this source. End of source PKS 1424 plus 240. So the top three sources reappear with improved significant. Uh, interestingly, one of these sources here on the fourth row in this analysis is NGC 4151. So here we are, you know, in 1943, Seifert discovered uh, broad spectral lines from these two sources published in this paper. So uh, we reproduced these two sources in neutrinos. And now I could go forever on forever again. But so <laughs> we just, all these sources are sources that are actually... Uh, active in radio, so they have an active core, and the core is opaque to gamma rays. So none of the stuff we see is accompanied by gamma rays. The gamma rays are shifted in the dense target that produces the neutrinos. They are shifted to MeV energy, X-ray, or below. And so this is where we stand. So, in fact, this is multi-messenger astronomy plan B. Mm -hmm. How do you look for sources that don't emit gamma rays. That's not so simple, actually. <laughs> so I'm waiting for ideas. Yeah. I think that's the end of this. Yes, so this is a NASA picture of uh, NGC 1068. Yeah, sorry, this is it. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Francis. So um, the other thing I wanted to pivot to was a uh, recent paper that your team had in Nature 
about a limit on quantum gravity. And I wonder, first of all, do you have any slides about that? And it's fine. Yes, I do. Okay, great. You I do. And I, you know, mm -hmm. I want to emphasize that uh, we are about 350 people analyzing ice cube data. The, what I presented, the astronomy I presented, is probably only about one third of us are doing this. I don't know the exact number, but uh, people are using this detector, of course, to do glaciology. There mm -hmm. was a time in my life I published more glaciology papers than uh, <laughs> than physics papers. I'm very proud of it. And uh, a large fraction is looking for dark matter. That has been a long haul. Amanda was actually originally very much motivated by the fact that we would have discovered dark matter if the wind miracle had happened. And unfortunately, it didn't. Yeah, so, that's right. Uh, but we are still looking. Yeah. And <laughs> people use uh, the neutrinos to do tom tomography of the Earth, geology. And it goes on and on. We do neutrino oscillations competing with Fermilab uh, with a different part of the detector that I didn't emphasize here. But uh, one of the things we all, we have been doing is, given the opportunity is so unique, we have been looking for quantum gravity. Mm. And this is a very old story. Uh, there is actually a whole community in physics that uh, involves uh, looking for quantum gravity, which is kind of married to the alternative, which is looking for uh, violations of special relativity. It's uh, it's it's they are uh, in bed together, as you will see, but. It's easy to explain, you know, our neutrinos have a mass. We detect them over cosmic distances with enormous energies compared to neutrinos we make at accelerators. So the fact that they have these tiny masses is very important for physics, but it's totally irrelevant here. The, our neutrinos are like photons. And so if they, they travel through the vacuum from the sources far away to here, and even though they have a flavor and oscillate into each other, by the time they arrive here, they arrive as packages of electron tau and mu neutrinos with equal, in equal numbers. So this is boring. Unless this thing happens and... I wrote an article oh, two decades ago, and a German artist made this picture. And what does it show? Mm. Well, it shows what the vacuum that our neutrinos travel through looks like if uh, you marry quantum mechanics and gravity. And so if you meant to marry quantum mecha gravity and, and quantum mechanics and gravity, you know, the sheet that uh, matter transforms that Wheeler always talks about, that sheet now has quantum fluctuations. Yes. And so this is a picture of what a vacuum looks like, our, our daily vacuum we live in now, uh, what it looks like uh, when uh, it has quantum 
properties and quantum fluctuation, which it has ha does mm -hmm. have to have. The problem is that in our present vacuum we live in, they are suppressed by the Planck scale. So they are tiny. Mm. And if I transform the Planck scale in a distance, they're 10 to the minus 33 centimeters. So you need neutrinos or photons with wavelengths of that magnitude to become sensitive to these fluctuations. And we do. And we already were aware of this and set the first limits with Amanda. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you we want to go into that much yeah, detail, but we should. We I, should. I, yeah, okay. I mean the audience loves to hear so the details. You all, you how do we look for this? I mean, clearly our experiment, you know, the is is ideal to look at these particles traveling through this fluct these quantum fluctuations over cosmic distances. That's how we get sensitivity. This effect is very small, but we can build it up by having the neutrinos travel for a very long way. And so what you basically do is uh, you test whether the particles satisfy this, the, the classic special relativity dispersion relation, E square equal P square plus M square. And that's the property of these neutrinos when they travel through, in absence through, through just vacuum. The M square doesn't really matter at our energy, but this relation between energy and momentum is modified when the neutrinos start to interact with the, they start to feel this quantum fluctuation. And that we parameterize as a, a power series, you know, a sum of N equal one, two, three, and so on. Uh, a distortion in energy that's characteristic of the Planck scale. So the quantum gravity scale or the scale of the violation of relativity, because you see E square not equal to P square can also be caused by violating special relativity. So we, we look for terms like that when the neutrinos propagate. And so it's a few line calculation. So what what actually happens? What happens is that uh, particles with different energy now begin to propagate, violating to a different extent this e square e square equal p square relation, and so the particles uh, with high energy get a time delay. Uh, proportion to particles with lower energy. The ones with high energy interact more, so they get delayed. And the time delay is given by the power of the term you are investigating, this power series. Uh, you know, we typically look for uh, N equal two term. And then so we look for a term uh, of time delays that are proportional to the energy square. And so, but the time delay builds up the larger distance you look to the source. So even though this is very small effect, if you build it up over long enough distances, you can, can become observable. And it does in the case of Ice Cube. So 
as I, it says here, integrate over very long distances. So here is uh, an example of one version of this analysis. And uh, I always like to quote, to show it with a quote from Michael Turner, who said that unlike Newtonian physics, general relativity will not last 200 years. So we're trying to prove him right. But you see here, we can put uh, limits of delta C over C, a change in speed of flight, or an influence of the gravitational field phi uh, on the propagation of the neutrinos. And you see, we sensitive to the variation of order 10 to the minus 28 when the coupling to the gravitational field is strong enough. It's given by this angle, which is I won't explain. Right. So you better so we are putting limits on violations of relativity of 10 to the minus 28. Now if you listen to how to how I explain this so you have these wave packages of three flavors traveling through these quantum fluctuations. So the different flavors can go or undergo a phase shift when they interact with these gravitational fluctuations. And that creates uh, flavor oscillations made by the interaction with, the, with this field with this quantized field. And uh, that violates, can violate the prediction I made two minutes ago that we have pa wave package of equal flavor arriving. And so what IceCube now does is uh, it, uh, and that the paper we recently published was one version of this. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, the number of uh, tau, mu and electron neutrinos in the beam. So we have to discover this red dot. If we are anywhere else in this plot, we have discovered something. Lorentz violation, quantum gravity. You can interpret it any way you want. And so our present, this, uh, this red dot with our present measurements of the three flavor scenario as a systematic error, which is given by this uh, by this butterfly, mm. but so if we we can establish uh, violations of uh, these principles, new new physics uh, by ending up somewhere anywhere else in this diagram, and so this is our present measurement. This is the error bar at a 68% level. And we are doing a dedicated effort similar to, or even bigger, to what I explained for finding the sources of the cosmic neutrinos to squeeze these error bars. We are actually going to put in uh, new strings upgrading the detector in the season 20. 526, which among other things will exactly focus on making this a small ellipse around the red dot and hopefully maybe not. So mm. we will see. But this is a high priority of the experiment. I have two more slides to, to remind you of uh, uh, a fun fact. You may remember that the Opera experiment 
discover the violation of relativity many years ago. Yeah, now. it was actually the year before yeah. the BICEP2 results came out, which made yeah. us very nervous <laughs> that we made a yeah. blunder. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you can see on this slide, there is another way to test relativity, which was pointed out by Glashow. That is, if uh, your particles move at a speed of light C prime, which is bigger than the speed of light, they carry an excess energy, mc prime square minus mc square, and that extra energy they can radiate away. And uh, that radiation, for instance, can be come out as e plus e minus pairs. But when they radiate away their energy, it means they lose energy. And at the time, Glashow and, and Floyd Stecker pointed out that the highest energy neutrinos had actually too high energy and were inconsistent with the opera observation. Of course, I don't know whether the opera has <laughs> observation disappeared before the paper was published, but our highest energy events seen at the time were inconsistent with that violation of relativity. So it shows we are doing something real in yeah. uh, in a very concrete uh, way right uh, and uh, no, actually yes I, I didn't last I didn't know yeah. about that and Sheldon yeah. Sheldon was a guest on the podcast about two years ago and I neglected to ask him about that event well there's so much to talk to Sheldon about as there is oh you. yeah I <laughs> mean how do you pick your subjects right <laughs> <laughs> yeah we could go for hours the only thing I want to yeah. say about the Lorentz invariance and we're looking for it in the uh, polarization signals of distant objects as they rotate yes. or do not yes. rotate. And you can look for uh, birefringence yeah. types effects as, yeah. as you've talked about with the yeah. ice. Um, By the way, I, you, you, you know, it's a clear quantum, but what, what, I was explaining before is the analogous of gamma rays traveling to a crystal, right? And they yes. can exchange their polarizations. There. It. So it's a pure quantum effect, but it's it's very straightforward to, to look for it. Yeah, it's uh, very interesting. And I guess the only, you know, kind of, um, uh, you know, critique that I've heard is that the results are somewhat model dependent. I mean, this this SME framework, which I've used in my papers before as well, yeah. is very, um, it's, it's very specific to a particular class of, you know, it's like they say about non-Gaussianity. It's like saying it's a non-dog animal. Well, there's a lot of non-dog animals in the world, right? So how do you well, address those, you know, kind well, of- Well, my answer is, that uh, this is the least model dependent you can get, right? Mm, mm -hmm. If you have a model, you mm -hmm. can always reinterpret it in terms of this power expansion. That's right. This is actually a standard method that was pioneered by Weinberg, right? Mm. To, to You have a theory and you parameterize the deviations in terms of uh, operators with of different dimensions and n are the dimension of these operators that's amazing yeah. so i think that's the most model so it's the most model independent you yeah. can can get that and any model we can reinterpret in terms of these results that's right that's right um well th thank you so much for that francis i guess the um the topics i'd now like to turn to is uh, what comes next uh, for Ice Cube. There's rumors of advanced Ice Cube um, structure that will come about. Can you talk a little bit about the status of? Do you have any slides uh, on that? Or, or? no, okay, uh, I uh, 
I don't have any slides on that. That's fine, yeah. Uh, so I, but it's very simple. I mean, if I had given a one hour talk, and I, I often do on Ice Cube, the only conclusion any reasonable listener can come to is we need better angle resolution, we need more statistics, we just don't want to deal with a few sources, we need more sources. Yeah. And what do you do? You have to build a bigger detector. Yes. Fortunately, we discovered when we build and design, when we build Ice Cube, we only had a vague understanding of how large the absorption length actually was. Hmm. Because Amanda was much smaller, right? So we had never seen ice and light propagate in ice over kilometer distance, right. which was necessary to measure an absorption length, which at the bottom of the detector is 250 meter for hmm. Schrenkov light. So it's just incredible. And uh, so we were conservative, but now we know we can space our photomultipliers further. And so this 125 meter distance between strings of photomultipliers, we're going to increase to 250 meters. And then we can instrument eight to 10 times the volume with the same number of photomultipliers. Wow. So 10 times the volume for the price of uh, Ice Cube. And uh, of course, uh, you know, all the, the data acquisition, which I discussed at the beginning, all that is uh, improved and uh, much cheaper. And so we really think we can build a next generation detector for the same cost uh, as, as the original one. We actually have, all, we have designed this detector uh, and submitted the design to the Decadal Review who endorsed it. So it's not uh, a dream anymore. <laughs> and at, a... le at least unlike the first dream, at this point, we know what we're doing. <laughs> it's not a gamble <laughs> anymore. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, congratulations with that. And of course, you know, it's just a phenomenal treat to see not only the success of your projects and uh, the leaders under your leadership, but all the young people that have come out of it. Uh, my friend, Nathan Whitehorn at, at UCLA. Yeah. And, and of course, sharing the the space with you and, and, and your team down at the South Pole um, with uh, uh, uh uh, so many young people. It's always so energizing to be down there and not to mention the hot tubs, uh, which were, which were quite great. I never got to go swimming in one of the hot tubs. Though, yeah. I, I always show a picture of the collaboration at the end of my talk, Yeah, but it's actually a picture and it's incredible. The age of our collaboration. I have theories why this is, but I won't go into it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. The other thing I have yeah. to say is, and this was always emphasized by Tre the late Trevor Weeks, who discovered, uh, who, who developed uh, gamma ray astronomy, Earth-based gamma ray astronomy. Trevor Weeks used to say, astronomy is not like particle physics. You need many telescopes. It's not like discovering the Higgs. You know, in principle, one detector right. could maybe have done it, but you need two. Even there, you need two. 
And so astronomy, uh, the sky is big. There are many problems. So with a smaller telescope and the right idea, you can contribute. Yeah. And so people picked, I think, the 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 biggest compliment to Ice Cube is that people are now planning and building detectors, building in Lake Baikal, building in the Mediterranean, building in off the coast of Vancouver in uh, Canada, and planning a detector uh, in uh, in China. Yeah. So no. there are many and many more to come. I hope. It's truly uh, breathtaking and inspiring to me as one of the uh, five or so co-leaders of the Simons Observatory, uh, which is equally sized and is also hoping to shed some light, no pun intended, on neutrinos and uh, their role as dark matter and and as a a very important budget uh, and energy budget constituent in the cosmos. So, Francis, we we speak a lot on this channel to young people, graduate students, postdocs, undergraduates. And uh, one of the favorite parts of the show is when I ask kind of non-scientific questions, which I call the existential questions are the final four. And I'd be honored if you'd answer uh, some of them, if if you don't mind right now. I am fearless, but I am okay. uh, I'm probably not a, a good or certainly not a typical subject for this, but let's go. There's no <laughs> difficult subject. So, yes, let's go into the impossible, the final four questions I ask. Uh, so they, they typically have to do with the distant future of both yourself and uh, and of humanity, perhaps. And then uh, advice to your former self as a young person, because as I said, we have a lot of uh, mostly men. I'm trying to boost that up, but uh, mostly young men interested in science and technology. Uh, but we are um, we are open for all. So the very first question that I always ask is, what would you put in what's called your ethical will? In other words, what would you like to to impart as wisdom that you've learned? Not scientific necessarily. It could be anything. It could be to your children, um, or great, you know, grandchildren, or many, many generations down the line. What piece of wisdom guides you, if any? Well, I I think with the advantage of not just looking at the future but looking back, uh, I want to come back to my years that I was at Le Maitre's Institute writing my undergraduate thesis on quarks. And imagine, this was 1967, 8, 1967, actually. Mm. Uh, And uh, so I alluded to the fact that if you worked on cosmology at the time, you were kind of a crackpot, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, Le Maitre was not a famous person, except for the fact he was a cardinal. Right. And he had been, uh, you know, the president of the Papal Academy and so. Uh, but I actually, my undergraduate thesis was on quarks, another topic that nobody would touch at the time. Right. And so first of all, the, the first message is just do what you're interested in. You cannot be successful if you do physics as a job. And I, I'm kind of at the edge of the generation where actually physics wasn't a job. And that was wonderful. Oh. Uh, I'm afraid to say the time yeah. is gone and it's rightly gone. Yeah, but, well. uh, 
so that's one message. The other message is how to, you know, I don't have to predict or be a visionary. Look how exciting science is. Can you imagine that in 67 you worked on quarks and jets and uh, on uh, cosmology and the Big Bang? You were not taken seriously. In fact, you couldn't get a job, even if it was a job. <laughs> and uh, look where we are now. I mean, the, a black hole and the Big Bang and a quark jet are as real as this cup of coffee on my desk, right? Nobody questions this anymore. And yeah. this happens in my career in in one generation of of a physicist. Wow. And I have no doubt that this will continue. Mm -hmm. yeah, it may not continue in the direction that we are now talking about. It may be off in a different direction, but I'm sure it will continue. Science will always be exciting. Yes, absolutely. It's the, it's uh, as you'll hear in just a second. I'll say what uh, my next <clears throat> my next quote comes from Sir Arthur C. Clarke who said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, and I want to ask you, what knowledge, either from your personal career or from all of science, or maybe, I don't know, anything from philosophy, theology, who knows, what piece of, of one sentence or the shortest amount of words that you could possibly describe the thing that humanity should be most proud of? Well, I as I always limit myself to the expertise I have, and uh, not just humanity. My generation should be proud of what we just talked about, yeah. and that's something to be very proud of. I think. I agree. Yeah, my late great colleague uh, Hans Parr. Did you ever know Hans? Did you? Ever yes. Know yes. Yes. So he yeah. was. Uh, he was a great influence on me. He said that. Uh, yeah. The general relativity, which is part of some of what we've talked about, uh, was the pinnacle not of just science, but of all of Western civilization. <laughs> uh, and so I agree. Yeah. A lot had to go into that. You had to have uh, cooperation, language. There's a beauty. There's artistry. And there's also a hard technology. And the most important thing, which you keep emphasizing so rightfully, is people. And the culture of yes. an experiment is so important. Okay, and, uh, and people who are really obsessed with what they're doing, those are the ones you are looking for. That's right. Yeah. Um, next question, before the second to last question, is another quote from Sir Arthur C. Clarke. And he said, when a distinguished but elderly scientist says that something is possible, he is almost certainly right. But when he states something is impossible, he is probably wrong. So I want to ask you, Francis, what have you been wrong about, if anything? Oh, many, many things. Uh, in fact, uh, let's go back to my my career. Career was half uh, astro particle physics and half particle physics. Right, I lived around accelerators. And uh, I wrote, when we were writing Halsen and Martin, uh, I, I actually gave Halsen and Martin originated because I took a semester leave at the University of Hawaii because I was working with Pan, uh, Sandy Pagvasa. Mm -hmm. 
By the way, that was the time they were developing Dumont. And I had no idea what Dumont was, but I'm sure it's stuck in my brain somewhere. <laughs> uh, but at the time, they asked me to give a course. And they say, you just come and talk what you did the last week. <laughs> and I thought, I walked into the room and the whole faculty showed up. Wow. And so... I decided the the set, the C0, had just been discovered, a weak intermediate boson. And I talked the first lecture about what a breakthrough this was. And, and so then I actually decided over the semester to, to develop what we now recognize as a sta standard model as lectures. Mm -hmm. And so that was the beginning of Halsen and Martin. Uh, so... I think uh, I never, there's something called the gym mechanism. And I couldn't believe that you could just invent another quark to fix a, a deep problem of the theory. And I thought that was incredibly naive. And it turned out to be right. And I remember going through this history of me being wrong not believing the gym mechanism. You know, gym mechanism fixed the standard model was postulating that there, there was a charm quark in the theory. Right. And so it made a big impression on me in the sense that, uh, you know, sometimes sim you, you shouldn't hold it against simple ideas. <laughs> you know, the simpler an idea, the more elegant. This was, in a sense, elegant. And I, I, my, my reaction was totally wrong that something simple cannot be right in nature. Mm. That simple. And so I learned a lot from that. It made a big impression on me too, because, uh, you know, I, I, uh, it doesn't feel good being totally wrong about something. No, absolutely not. But I think the mark of a good scientist is to recognize, learn from it, yeah. uh, own up. And, and I, I learned my lesson from that. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And I, you know, I never have, uh, unless something can, is demonstrably wrong, I have very, I accept everything. <laughs> Basically, I mean, if uh, you you have to have a very open mind when you approach a problem, it's not good to be biased. That's what the yeah. thing I learned here. Yeah. Well, that really does dovetail into the last question, which is uh, from Arthur C. Clarke's third law, which states the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way into the impossible. And maybe I'll pivot because you've you've said so much about you know kind of advice to your former self. Maybe if you were getting into this career or in any kind of career, you're 20 years old, you're at the University of Wisconsin Madison, you're at UC San Diego or wherever. But what would you go into? What would you advise a young Francis Halsen to go go and do to do as you've done to go into the impossible? I all already gave the answer to yeah. that. You go what you're interested in, unless you're obsessed by the subject. I mean, being a physicist from all objective point of views is a miserable career. Yes. And uh, I don't have to state the reasons. The only reason it's worth doing is you just enjoy this. You're obsessed by it. You love what you're doing. 
And so if you do it as a job, it's going to be very, very disappointing, I think. So I, I think this this is just... And the other thing is, uh, you know, I always lived with... Uh, don't underestimate yourself. I totally lived with... Until <laughs> I went on this crazy adventure of... Uh, Amanda and Ice Cube, I always lived with the insecurity that I didn't belong to the circles I moved in, which I think must be true for almost every graduate student. Just get over that. Mm. And uh, I don't know how to do this. I never did it until, you know, you go on a on a wild ride like we did with Neutrino Astronomy. Then you just, you know, surfing the waves right but uh, at many times of my career i think i missed opportunities because i was insecure and uh so you you know it are not always the smart people who make the breakthroughs that's (laughs) another way that's a very parochial way of thinking about it well Uh, you know imagination can trump intelligence there there are many angles to doing research Uh, and so just go for it. It's uh, very, very uh, wonderful that you say that. And we'll close with this. Um, so when I interviewed Barry Barish two or three years ago now for this podcast, I asked him that same kind of a question uh, in the form of, have you ever experienced the imposter syndrome, which is this feeling of insecurity yeah. that you just spoke about? Yeah. And he said, um, uh, yes, I have it worse than ever now. I said, yeah. what are you talking about? You have the Nobel yeah. Prize. He said, no, 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 Brian. When you win a Nobel Prize, you have to uh, go and sign this logbook in Sweden that says that <laughs> I got my Nobel Prize. So Barry's incredibly curious, very imaginative. And he goes back and he looks through the previous pages and he sees he sees Feynman and he sees a gal man uh, at, his, uh, Alma, at his home institution of Caltech. And he goes farther back. He sees uh, Maria Gephardt Mayer maybe here at San Diego. And then he goes back to 1922 and sees Albert Einstein. He sees <laughs> this guy's signature here, my favorite little uh, sock puppet. And he says, I'm not worthy. I'm not as smart as Einstein. And I say, Barry, guess what? You know, Einstein had the imposter syndrome. You know, he wasn't always yeah, Einstein. Exactly. He said, what are you talking about? He said, Einstein felt that Newton did more for the human culture and civilization than any person before or since. And he said, wow, I didn't know that. And I said, Barry, guess what? It gets better. Newton had the imposter syndrome. He's like, ah, you got to be kidding me. He said, I said, no, Barry. Isaac Newton wrote, uh, he said, I live in shame that I never lived up to the ideals of Jesus Christ. So we all have our imposter, you know, kind of moments when we feel we're inadequate. And then, and then he on, ended up uh, writing. I don't know if you can read this, but I'll send you a copy of this book uh, next time I'm out there. But Barry wrote the uh, forward to my second book, which has his interview yeah, in it. And I hope someday that I, I actually read it either on your webpage or somewhere. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, I so. don't think it's unusual. I think it's also, I don't think it's a problem. It's only a problem when it prevents you from doing things. That's right. That's exactly right. And I think you're that, right to have the courage yeah. and just, as you said, just yeah. do it. Well, Francis, you've been an inspiration to me as a scientist, as a teacher. 
as a leader and as an author. <laughs> and I'm just so glad and honored and thrilled that you were able to spend so much of your valuable time with us. Thank you so much. I hope we can see each other again. Maybe you'll come here in January and I'll go there in June my, and we'll go and get some cheese curds on the Capitol together. It was a pleasure. Well, wasn't that just amazing? It's such a delight to have guests like Francis on. His curiosity, imagination uh, is purely, truly contagious. I just get such a thrill talking to him. It's been 20 plus years since we were together. And so you guys give me the opportunity to talk to these people. And I just can't thank you enough for joining in. As I said, please leave a review of the podcast, a rating at least, an asterism of five stars or so uh, wherever you're listening to it and you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts don't forget to subscribe to my mailing list briankeating.com slash list you could win one of these meteorites one of them might have your name on it yes you driving while you're listening to this be careful watch out look out up ahead there could be a high energy neutrino coming your way and that's about it don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel to see the slides from Francis Halsey and I'll give special thanks to my super producer Stuart Balkow and all the great support that I get at UC San Diego and Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, which I am privileged to associate direct. It's kind of weird sounding, but that's the truth. So for now, I hope you have a rest of your week that is truly, truly magical. Until next time, signing off your fearful host, Dr. Brian Keating. <laughs>